0: The question many of us ask is, does what I do even matter? It's a question of the ultimate significance of what we do with the majority of our lives. You might be a butcher or a carpenter, a parent, unemployed or studying full time, a CEO or a shift worker in the health sector. As Dorothy Sayers once said, often the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is confined to encouraging him not to be drunk and disorderly during the week and to come to church on Sundays. What we should be telling him is this, that the very first demand upon him is that he should make good tables. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. Well,
1: welcome to New Life 10 a.m. service, and thank you for joining us online. You already know who I am. I've introduced myself, and I'm really looking forward to this series. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to have faith and work, and where do these things coincide? Before I do that, I want to let you know a little bit about what's happening out in our Kids Life ministry. James Hunt is a fantastic leader in our church. He runs Kids Life here on the Gold Coast. And and he really believes that our kids' life ministry isn't a babysitting program, it's a discipleship strategy. And, And part of that reality is that the best people at discipling the next generation are their parents. And we as a church want to partner with you as you are discipling your young people to be more like Jesus. So James has put together a parent guide to what we're doing at Kids' Life. This means that when you're coming home and you're in the car and you say to one of your young people, hey, what did you learn at Kids Life today? And they might say, oh, nothing really. Friends, you can pull this out and go, well, Mr. James has told me what you've learned. You ask questions. Now, it's not to hold them accountable. It's to create moments of conversation around the dinner table, in the car, that you might be a part of catalyzing these young people's faith to follow Jesus, I'm stoked about it. I'd love you to high-five James in the courtyard, or, or say see a kids' life leader and say you're doing a great job. Secondly, friends, this week's been a bit of a rough week. We're joined online right now by my wife and son who are at home. They're still not feeling a bit well. My my family's been uh, through the ringer a bit this week. I'm doing really well today after two COVID tests all coming back negative. However. I'm going to need prayer today just to be able to make sure that we're able to uh, hear from God and that this is a short sermon. Amen? That was a test. Why did you say amen? <laughs> you shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Hopefully, online, you're with us today. friend, would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, I thank you so much that, number one, for health. I thank you so much for uh, just restoring and rest. But as we come before you today, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be attentive to Michael's voice, but your voice, Holy Spirit. God, whether we're in Cairns right now or here on the Gold Coast, Lord, we don't need to hear from a pastor. We need to hear from you, Jesus. So quiet our hearts. Concerns, worries, questions that we may have walked in with, Father, just allow them not to distract us for the next couple of moments. Open our ears that we might hear from you today. Less of me, more of you, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I understood the relationship that faith has with work. I was at a conference for young adults, and this conference happened about 10 years ago. It was called Compass. And when I was at this conference called Compass, the whole purpose of Compass was to teach young adults what the gospel is, how to understand the culture, and how to translate the gospel, into the culture around us. Know the gospel, know the culture, and translate. It changed my life. We spent a full week understanding the message of grace and love from the Scriptures. And on the fifth day, they did this activity to us that was deeply moving for me. What they did is they paused for a moment, and they started to run every young adult through the room through scenarios that required us to apply what we'd learned about the gospel to real-life situations. And I remember one scenario in particular because it was true and it actually happened. They brought forward this man that we'd never met named John. And John was a businessman. What did John do for a job? Well, what he did was he was a middleman that got money from investors and gave it to small business entrepreneurs to to initiate new ideas and and new businesses in third world and developing countries to stimulate their economy. It's a great idea for a business. And he came forward to tell us about not his success, but a moment when things went wrong in his business. John stood up in front of us and he told us this story. He said, one day, a man named Robert came to us with a strategic plan and a business plan to actually, with millions of dollars, to invest in small businesses in third world countries and he wanted us to invest and back him. So I took the business plan and strategic plan to the investors and they did. They gave him millions and Robert was off on a venture they all hoped would change the world. Weeks into the venture, Robert vanished along with all the money without a trace. And John, who was accountable to the investors, was having phone calls of where is the money that we gave you, what's being done with it, and he didn't know how to answer. John, in this moment, in the middle of the conference, turned to this room filled with young adults and says, so as Christians, what do you do? And we were so sure. Well, God is a God of grace. But grace doesn't remove consequences. So you need to go and get the CIA to hunt this guy down, bring him back to Australia and make sure it's all squared away. Like we were breathing the wrath and justice of God. So John continued. He said, well, let me tell you what happened next. I did engage the authorities and uh, CIA is America. So we went through Australian stuff. And and, and he said, "We, we found where this guy was. And so I flew to the country where he'd gone to ground. I put him on a plane and brought him back to Australia. And I said, Robert, where is the money? What? went wrong. Robert started to recount in tear in tears and in anguish how he'd made a risky bad investment that wasn't part of the original business plan and he'd lost everything. He'd run away and disappeared because he knew that this might cost him his family, his life, his income, and he might have to go to prison because he extorted millions and millions of dollars. And John turned to us at this moment and said, "So as Christians, what would you do next?" Now, we as young adults, we were once again so sure. We're like, well, he's just told you what he's done. He's got to sell his car. He's got to sell his house. He's got to go to prison. You know, God forgives him and loves him, but that doesn't take away the fact that justice must be done. And we spent like five, 10 minutes all debating around what form of justice Robert should come under. And John, once we all fell quiet, said, do you want to know what I did? And we were like, yes. He said, well, instead of me telling you, why don't I get Robert to tell you? He's just down the back. And Robert stood to his feet, this unassuming man, and we were all deadly silent thinking, oh no, this poor man. We've been dissecting his character in front of him. Robert walked down the front. John said, Robert, why don't don't you tell him what we did next? Robert told us a story about how he wasn't a bad man, just made bad decisions. And he said that he was at the end of his rope and he didn't know a way out. But he didn't want to be the man that loses millions of dollars and ends up in prison. He, he knew that God had created him for more and he was desperate. And he says that when John heard it, John also heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. But John knew two things. Number one, that the investors had to be paid back and that there was a massive failure that they needed to be dealt with. So John went to his own personal savings, took out millions of dollars, gave it to the investors on Robert's behalf and said, I'm going to disciple you, Robert. I'm going to mentor you and i to lead you to become who God has called you to be. Why? Because Jesus gives everyone a second chance. And we stood in a room, silent. For the first time in my life, I saw how the gospel wasn't this isolated thing to talk about on Sundays. But that when people applied it to the world, we could partner with God in redeeming people redeeming vocation and redeeming our world. Robert then went on to tell us that he was now a significant leader in John's business. He had not failed again. He'd learned his lesson and had now earned back much of the money that John had lost. The God was glorified and Robert was blessed because John understood the gospel. You know why it impacted me the most? Because most of my life I've grown up in church and very rarely did I hear stories of God's interest in what we do for a job, and God partnering with us as we worked out our vocation. What, what I kind of grew up with is understanding that when you're in church, church thinks that this one hour we have together is the most important hour of the week, and everything else is secondary. But as I've found out at Compass, and as I walk this journey with Christ, I don't think that's true. John Mark Comer says it like this. In the church, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their lives. Too often, our faith can focus on things where it's just the shortest amount of time when we wake up in the morning, what we do with that morning moment, but then we forget that most of our day, most of our week is spent working. And I believe God cares what we do with our lives end with our work. God wants to be invested in our work that our work might be invested in his kingdom. So having said that, there are going to be a bunch of you in this room and online today that are thinking, man, I am backing now. I'm not coming to church again for the next six weeks. I have left work on Friday. I don't want to talk about it again on Sunday. Some of you are sitting here and saying, this doesn't apply to me because I'm retired. I don't work anymore. What Why do I need to talk about faith and work? I've done that. I'm in a new season. Some of you believe work is just a means to an end, to grow your bank account or to go on holidays. Some of you, work sounds tiresome and you're weary and you're burnt out or burning out and work is not a pleasant topic for you. Some of you believe that Monday, and Friday, Monday to Friday has nothing to do with your faith, that church should just stay in Sundays and leave you to work the rest out. Some of you, you're a full-time mother or father, and you're like, how does this even apply to me when I'm you know, changing diapers and cleaning snotty? Notes? How does work make sense for me? Some of you would love to be doing what you love for a job, but have given up your dreams to do what you can to support your family. And here's what I want to say to you, that in this room and online right now, there is a diverse range of people who have a diverse range of occupations and stages and seasons of life. And I believe more than anything that God wants to talk to each of us. Because whether you are a butcher, a baker, a mother, a father, a cleaner, a bricklayer, whether you spend all your time working or whether you are retired, I believe that many of us ask this question. Does what I do even matter? And the Christian narrative, friends, says, yes, it does. God cares. So this series, over the next six weeks, is going to unpack how work is not just something that Christians do in their spare time. It's central to the Christian mission. Come join us. Come that God might redeem our time so we might redeem the time. See, in my experience though, even though I've said all that, explained that many of you will probably still be sitting here and thinking that work is something to escape from rather than step into. So what I want to do today is I want to lay a foundation for us understanding how the Bible speaks into work. And the first thing we need to know is this simple truth. God created God created, oh, no, it's not that truth. There we go. God created work. God created work. Sometimes we look at work as a curse or a weight or something that we don't really love doing. But when you come to the Bible, you recognize, actually, before anything happened, God created work. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. This is the first verse in the Bible, in the first book in the Bible. Some of you are like, What's a Genesis? Genesis means beginnings. And right at the start of the biblical narrative, what do we see? God at work. Now, some of you are sitting and going, No, Michael, we see God creating. The Bible doesn't say God. Well, for the next six days, God formed everything. Everything came into existence from nothing. And then what it says to us on the seventh day is this, in Genesis 2, verse 2 to 3, by the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. In a moment of divine inspiration, God not only works for seven days, but He shows us the model of rest as well. Why is this important? Because if God worked, work is not something that is sinful or to be seen with disdain, but central into how we imitate God. He's God weaving galaxies, creating mountains, forming intricate fish and birds and animals, and then going on to create humans as well. And we've got to recognize work existed before sin and before mankind. There was work. Therefore, work is not an oppressive force to escape from, but work is a way which we imitate the divine activity of God. You know, two books that I've been reading in preparation for this series, Garden City by John Mark Comer and Every Good Endeavor by Timothy Keller. Another great one is Walter Brueggemann's uh, translation and and, uh, commentary on the book of Genesis. And Timothy Keller goes on to say this in his book. He says... He says, it's suspenseful. He, guys, it's amazing what he says. Trust me. If I just get you to click the next thing for me, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Let me tell you what he says. He says this, In the beginning then, God, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but it was something that was beneath, it was not something beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. Because God did more than just create through work, friends. He created humanity to work. It's interesting, in the 8 a.m. service, this first part of the sermon was deadly silent, especially at that part where I'm like, He created humanity to work. So I'm going to be like, This is not good news for me today. It gets better. See, in Genesis, We read this in Genesis 1, verse 26, towards the end of the creation narrative. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Friends, You are created in the image of God. If you're online, why don't you type to someone, you're created in the image of God. Why don't you turn to the person next to you in the room and say, you are created in the image of God. Now turn back to that same person. I just saw a couple kiss during that moment. All power to you. Why don't you turn back to that person and say, stay 1.5 meters away from me at all times. Now, the reason why this is important is because we have to understand first, before God commissions us to work, he creates us in his image. Why is the image of God so central? Because you've got to understand what is meant by the words image of God. The word image is the Hebrew word "salem," An image of God is actually best translated in uh, the ancient Hebrew as Selem Elohim. Now, "salem" is actually not a term unique to Judaism or Christianity. In the ancient world, salems were everywhere. Images were everywhere. Because a Salem was a statue, an image, or an idol. So if there was a civilization that built a temple to the God of the sun, what they would put in that temple is a Salem, a statue that helped everyone in that society know whose temple it was. This is crucial. In fact, Many writers think that kings back in those days used to erect Salem's, Salem Elohim's, in every piece of conquered territory where their armies had invaded. Because the king was not physically present in every single city and town, they would erect statues or Salem's of themselves. And when you looked at the Salem, what would you know? This town is under the rule, responsibility, and authority of the one the statue points to. Do you understand why it's so Important, we recognize what God is saying by saying you are made in his image. God doesn't fill the world with lifeless statues of himself. God fills the world with autonomous, living and breathing men and women who are his direct likeness and reflection, pointing to creation, to the goodness and greatness of God. In the book, Garden City, John Comer says this, We were put on earth because the entire cosmos is this God's temple to make visible the invisible God, to show the world what God is like. We are the creator's representation to his creation. Friends, this is crucial to understanding why we work because being the image of God is not some self-esteem boost to make you feel warm and fuzzy late at night. It's an identity to remind you of your calling. You are made in the image of one who breathes galaxies for a living and we are the images of this God. We were created to image him. And what does it mean for us to image God? What are we meant to do? Well, the Bible tells us. In Genesis 1 verse 28, it goes on and says this, God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and increase, or be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue. Now, when we hear the words rule and subdue, we can think these are oppressive words, like God is saying to to male and female, go and take and conquer. No, no, no. The word subdue in, in Hebrew is actually better understood as to take the earth and make it useful for the benefit of every other living thing. Genesis 1 verse 28 is what we know as the cultural mandate. It's a cultural mandate. It's God's mandate to all of us. Now, what was a cultural mandate? Exactly what it sounds like. It's a mandate to create culture. It's a mandate to create culture. God says to you, be fruitful and multiply. Now, sometimes we think that this means go and reproduce, have children. Now, yes, that's within this, but it's not just about reproduction. God doesn't just want people to go and have babies. God wants people to multiply societies and communities and fill the earth with his image. This is a beautiful commissioning. Why? Because God is not calling us to come and serve him, but come and partner with Him. Nancy Piercy says it like this, Our call is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God Himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing His creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God Himself. So what are we talking about when we talk about work? Work is what we do with the creation God has given to us. In fact, Timothy Keller gives us this beautiful definition where he says this, work is in rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people thrive and flourish. What does this look like? What does it look like for you right now to take raw materials from our world and rearrange them so people flourish? This is the stay-at-home parent who sees their children not as just biding time until they're adults, but their responsibility to grow children into teenagers and adults that will bless the world, the rearranging of the raw materials. This is the carpenter that when they see wood, does not see a job to be completed, but a beautiful masterpiece to be created, that the world would be blessed and God would be glorified. This is the CEO who, as he's signing contracts and organizing strategies, sees his role to act with integrity and operate with economic sustainability that the world is blessed and God is glorified. This is the not-for-profit leader. It's it's the cleaner. It's the bricklayer. It's the lecturer. It's the student. It's the Hungry Jack's burger flipper. That was me at 18. Shout out if that's you. Don't really shout at me. You just stay where you are. (laughs) Saying, bless the world, And glorify God. This is the cultural mandate. It's what God calls us into. And he says, you're meant to do this. And how do we know? Because God didn't make creation a finished product. Now, now I know that's controversial, but, but come with me. He didn't give us bread. He gave us grain. He didn't give us wine. He gave us grapes. And what humanity did is partnered with God to cultivate and create things that usher and give lives. He, turns, he calls couples to turn into family. He says, make something of the world in the creator's name. This is beautiful. Why? Because God doesn't call you to be his slave. You are not God's hireling. You are purposed and created to be his co-workers, his co-rulers, and his partners in cultivating his creation. Friends, this changes how we work. This changes how we see our vocation. But still, as I'm preaching, some of you are sitting there and going, yes, Michael, but I still hate what I do tomorrow. Nothing you're saying makes me excited about going to work. In fact, I left it on Friday. Why on earth are we talking about it on Sunday? And the reason why, friends, that no matter how well I compel you and envision cast to you is the understanding that work is not the way God designed it to be. Because if God created work, the next truth is that sin, sin ruined work. Sin ruined work. Now, for those of you who are new to Christianity, we're just going to give you a crash course in where the story of Genesis goes. But if you have any questions about the story of Genesis, what I've said about the beginning or sin, we've done a long series in Genesis at the start of the sheet. Go back and check it out and, read, and, and hear how we've unpacked some of these issues about creation versus science and sin and the dynamic of it all. But what happens is that God puts Adam and Eve in the garden to work. In Genesis 2 verse 15, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden to cultivate it and to work it, the Bible says, to farm it and develop it for the glory of God and the good of the world. But something goes wrong. God says, I want you to partner with me. I want you to work with me. But here's the thing. I also want you to trust me. So I'm going to put a tree. There's a tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whatever you do, don't eat from the tree. Now, maybe you're sitting there going, well, why would God put a tree in the garden anyway? And this is all a bit weird. We've dealt with these questions when we preach through Genesis chapter 3. Feel free to go to church.nu slash messages and and unpack it there. I don't want to revisit that too much today. But what ends up happening is Adam and Eve are cultivating. They're growing. They're farming. They're building. And then a snake comes along and says to Eve, eat from the tree. And Eve says, "No, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But then the snake tempts her by saying something in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, which changes work forever. The snake says to Eve, you will not certainly die for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Why should this confuse us? Because were they not already like God? They were Selem Elohims. So why was Eve wanting to eat the fruit to gain something she already had? Because it wasn't about becoming like God by taking control from God for her own personal gain. Adam and Eve eat from the tree. And the reason why this is world-shattering, history-altering moment is because humanity, you, nudge the person next to you and say you. Someone tell Calvin online that I'm talking to him tonight. You were created to be selfless. Your heart was originally designed to be outwardly focused. But what sin does and what happens in this moment is sin comes and says, prioritize yourself. The, the Latin for it is "incavatus in se, which is the heart curving in on itself. This is the best understanding of sin. Sin is not necessarily something we do. What we do starts in our heart when we prioritize Ourselves, and friends. This is what has ruined work, because instead of what we do for a job or the economies that we're a part of, or the world being focused about blessing the world and glorifying God, the images of God no longer want to image God. They want to build their own image, their own salems, their own platforms, their own social media reaches, and they want to pursue their own greatness and grow their bank accounts. So what do we do? We disconnect and we usurp God. We no longer want to partner with him. We want to take from him for our own gain. What lies at the root of sin ruining everything? Friends, it's selfishness. Selfishness is at the root of all sin. And when we're selfish, work becomes about the pursuit of whatever we want at the expense of the world and of others. Selfishness tells us that we should base our identity on what we do and how much we make. Excuse me, friend. Quick tea break. Selfishness tells us that we should compete with others for position. Selfishness says that your life is about building your kingdom, your house, your bank account, nothing else. And this selfishness ruins the created order of everything it introduces the world into a curse and god tells adam and eve what this curse means he says to them in genesis chapter three to the woman he says i will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to adam he said because you listened to your wife and uh, and ate fruit from the tree uh, about which i commanded you you must not eat from it Here's what's going to happen. Curses the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since it from you were taken, for dust you are and dust you will return. What do we see happen here? Selfishness ruins everything. And I don't care if you're a Christian today or not a Christian. I guarantee most of you would agree with me. Selflessness is breaking our world. The curse here that we're talking about, John Marcoma says, is not, doesn't mean a voodoo spell. It means that in the, week, in the wake of human sin, there are far-reaching, irreversible, toxic changes to the experience of family and field. What was once all joy is now a mixed bag. There's still a lot of joy, for sure, but there's also a lot of frustration. Both childbearing and gardening are now called painful labor. And the language of thorns and thistles is symbolic for all culture making. All human effort for civilization is now cursed with a nagging sense of dissatisfaction. Friends, many of you know exactly what this is like. You know the power of sin to curse what you do as a job. Some of you are here today and your job is eating you alive. Some of you are burning out. Some of you hate what Monday brings. Some of you are not employed yet. Some of us have hopes and dreams that have not been actualized. And it is hard. You don't feel like you are subduing and ruling. You feel not like you're innovating and easing. You feel as if you are slaves to a system and an economic burden you can't escape from. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller says that what sin does to work is four things. Sin makes work pointless. That some of you are working, you're like, is there any point to this? Does what I do matter? I don't think I'm significant. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Some of you feel like work is pointless today. Some of you know the pain of work becoming fruitless. No matter how hard you work, it seems like no one's going to remember you. No one's going to know your achievements. Like like the world is just circling around this pointless, fruitless endeavor. Some of you today know that work sometimes becomes selfish. Our work serves our own needs to earn money, our own priorities. We use our retirement to gratify and glorify ourselves rather than actually go, God, what do you want me to do? We use our study, we use our jobs, we use what we do as a vocation to build our own platform. Or work becomes idolatry. And this is perhaps the most damaging of all because we sacrifice our families, our health, our futures, and sometimes our faith on the altar of our career. And all these things are results of the curse of sin. Upon work. And I know, I know because I know that I know that there are some of you who are here today that are struggling with this reality. That there are some of you here today that know the taint of sin upon your work. And it's not easy, it's not good. And, and and you feel like your work is eating your life. Can I say this was not the way God intended it to be? It's meant to be better than this. God created work before sin. Sin ruined work. And as you pause to think about that, I'm just going to blow my nose. <laughs> Lastly, Christ redeemed work. Lastly, Christ redeemed work. Because friends, not only did God create, not only did sin ruin, but the biblical narrative doesn't leave you in the hopelessness of your own mistakes, of the mistakes of humanity. What it leaves you in, is with a hope of a better future that Christ steps in and redeems. And friends, if you are here today and you feel hopeless, you feel helpless, you feel like there is no way out, let me tell you the truth of the gospel, that God, once he sent the first Adam, the first Salem Elohim, and watched Adam and Eve fail his hopes and intentions for them, the Bible interrupts the narrative again, and another Salem Elohim is born. A second Adam. But this is not just a mere human. It is God himself become flesh. This second Adam's name is Jesus. And Jesus steps into the biblical narrative to redeem our work, us as people, and our world. What I love about the story of Christ is if you know it, you know that Jesus is born. We celebrate that at Christmas. And then we know nothing until he's 12 when he spends some time in a temple and then we know nothing until he's 30. And like, well, what did he do between 12 and 30? We find out that he was getting his hands do it dirty. Working. He was building. The Bible tells us that he was a builder. Some be like, oh, it says carpenter. Actually, it doesn't. It says builder. We don't know if he did hung out with wood or stone or bamboo. Who knows? But we know that Jesus built. Which means What? That when you're at your work and you feel like it's pointless, it's hard, it's frustrating, and people's demands on you are weighing you down, you have a God that can relate. He worked because before he got his hands dirty with sin, he got his hands dirty with work. And then at the age of 30, he steps into his calling, he steps into all that he has. And he lived a life we could not de- live. And he died a death that we could not die, that he might roll back the curse of sin and he might redeem our hearts from its selfishness. Because we can all agree, friends, selfishness is an issue in our life. But I don't know about you, no matter how hard I try not to be selfish, I just become more selfish. Because I'm like, don't be selfish, don't be selfish. And I just think about myself and I just become more selfish. Selfish. I need someone to change my heart for me. I can't do it on my own. And this is what Jesus comes to do at the cross of Calvary. He doesn't come to modify your behavior. He comes to offer you spiritual transformation and a new life and a new heart. That if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, he comes to redeem your purpose. And what does this mean? He doesn't only redeem our life, he wants to redeem your work. And the beauty of this is that we might partner with God again. Christ came to set you free from finding your value being derived from your work. Rather, he wanted your work to be the way you gave value to the world. Some of you today, and you think that your worth is based on what you do. The gospel tells us this, that the CEO and the cleaner have equal standing before the kingdom of God. God doesn't look at your bank accounts or how productive you are in your job. He looks at the finished work of Jesus Christ and what it says about your identity. This sets us free, friends, from having to find our value with what we do from our hands so now we can give value to a world when we're no longer striving to create it. Christ sets you free from finding your identity in your job. Some of you think that you're nothing more than what you do for a job, which means that if you ever stopped working, you would lose who you are. But Christ says, no, no, you're not just your job. That's attached to your work, but you're a son or a daughter of God who is a lawyer. You're a son or a daughter of God who is a cleaner. You're a son or a daughter of God who is a cotton picker. Shout out to our friends out at St. George. You're a son or a daughter of God first, and your identity informs what you do. It is not informed by what you do. Christ's sacrifice means that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for a greater purpose and a greater master. Friends, your work was not meant to eat you alive. It was meant to fill you with purpose. What is your purpose? Still Genesis 1 verse 28, to bless the world and glorify God. So therefore the greatest question for the Christian is this, how does what I do every day bless the world and glorify God? And every single one of us can answer that question. No matter where you are, how you're positioned, whether you're retired or you're 18 and just starting your career, every one of us can answer that question. Because Jesus changes the metrics. He changes our employer. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. What does this mean? It means, friends, that if you're like me and you're 18 and you're flipping burgers at Hungry Jack's, then you're not working for your manager. You're working for Jesus. Hungry Jack's just gives you a check. It means if you're a CEO, you're not working for a board. You're working for the God who creates universities. The board thinks they're in control. No, you're glorifying a greater master than them. This changes everything for us, friends, because when we work, we don't work to please humanity. We work to glorify God and bless humanity. It changes the metrics on everything. And this is why as a church, we have to get better at talking about work. As Dorothy Sayers says in the beginning video, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion or faith makes upon him is that he should make beautiful tables. Friends, you don't know what God's calling you to do? Make beautiful things. Bless the world and glorify God. Live out Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. But more than that, recognize that Jesus attaches a second command. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us a different way that we go and fill the world. Then Jesus came to them and said, "All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything. What is he saying? Go and fill the world. This is another command to increase and multiply by making disciples. When you wake up tomorrow, there are two things you're called to recognize. That the original cultural mandate and the new call to make disciples have now been married together in a vision for how your life can change the world around you. Therefore, friends, there are two questions that we should ask tomorrow morning when we wake up. How can I bless the world today and glorify God with the work of my hands? And secondly, how can I work in a way that people ask questions, creating opportunities for discipleship? Every one of us has opportunities to do those two things. Every one of us. The cultural mandate is still present. It's still there, friends. God is not wanting work to be a curse, but a blessing. We're going to talk about rest. I know some of you in this room see work as something which is taxing you. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about the gift of rest. But I want to finish today with a story that teaches us what it looks like to marry Genesis with Matthew, to marry the cultural mandate with the call to make disciples. This story comes from a law firm where a young lady had started her job. And in this career... What ends up happening is that she makes a big mistake in the first couple of weeks. First couple of weeks, she she really stuffs up a project for one of the partners. And because she's new, she knows that this mistake will cost her her job. She goes and tells her supervisor. And this supervisor goes before the board of accountability and instead of blaming her, takes full responsibility for the mistake. This man loses reputation And he loses an ability to manoeuvre in his workplace because he took the blame. This young woman, this young lawyer, has never seen this happen before. She goes, man, in, in past, I've seen supervisors take credit for my good work, but they always leave me alone when I've done something wrong. They make me carry that on my own. Never have I seen a supervisor take the weight of my mistake. So she goes into his office and she says to him, Why? Why would you do this? And he says, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He's like, no, you lost reputation. Like, why would you do this for me? So this quiet, humble man turns to her and says, I'm a Christ follower. And you see, what it means to be a Christ follower is simply this. We believe that Jesus Christ took the blame for the things that I have done, for the things I did wrong. He did that on the cross, and that's why I have a desire and sometimes that ability to take the blame for others she stared at him for a long moment tears in her eyes it's the first time she'd met a Christian to do this and she said to him hey where do you go to church could I come and in a moment her journey with Christ began because he sought to bless the world and glorify God friends we have been redeemed to redeem Let us redeem the time this week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, right now, I believe there are people all across this room, people joining us online, that God, when we hear about sin, when we hear about shame, when we hear about work eating us alive, we relate. So God, what are you saying to us right now? What are you saying to us right now? I want to create a moment. For some of us, work has become sinful or work has always been sinful. It's about your selfishness. And it's eating you alive. It's eating alive the people you love. And it's not what God has created you for. Maybe your work has become pointless, fruitless, selfish, or idolatrous. And right now today, I just want to ask if you would join us in repenting and turning to Jesus. That we would have a moment where we go, you know what, God? I don't want my life to be about me. I want to bless the world and glorify you. I want to live for a greater purpose. So friends, I just want to ask I've been praying about this since early this morning that if that's you, if you see how sin has affected how you see work, and you want to turn to Christ and ask Him to redeem it, right across this room right now, if you're online as well, you can click the live prayer button. But if that's you, would you stand wherever you are? Would you stand with me wherever you are? I'll wait for you. Awesome. Friends, if you know that your work has become a product of sin and not a product of blessing the world, would you just stand with us now? Thank you, Jesus. And if you're online, Calvin and the team would love to pray for you. You can click the live prayer button right now. I want to pray for those of you who are standing. If you know someone that's standing, maybe you just reach out next to them and just like turn your hand towards them. But if you are standing, why don't you just open your hands in front of you with me? Lord God, There are so many distractions and pressures in our world to focus on me, to focus on ourselves. The world tells us that we should become great rather than blessing the world and glorifying you. So right now, I pray for everyone who is standing. I pray right now, God, do a transformative work in all of our hearts. Lord, we need our work not to be a curse, but a blessing to us and the world. I pray for forgiveness right now for that individual who's been working so hard and forgetting to rest in their family. Lord, I pray for forgiveness. I pray for forgiveness for those of us who have idolized our work and got our value and identity from it. Lord, wash us with your grace. And Lord, I thank you that you say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and and weary, and I'll give you rest. Rest from sin and an eternal life. I pray that for every individual standing right now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Friends, you can grab a seat. Thank you for standing with me today. The second group of people I want to pray for is each week we want to pray for a different sphere of careers in our our people. And this week what we'd love to pray for is we'd love to pray for those of you who are in the sphere of health. And if you work in health today, what I want to do is I want to pray for you. I want to commission you. And I want to ask God to bless you as you are a blessing to the world. So what will happen is that there'll be a video play behind me. And if you work in the vocation of health, here's what I would love you to do. Would you just stand? Or if you're not sure if you work in the vocation of health, then there'll be names come up behind me. Is that video good to go yet? Thanks so much. So friends, if you work in health, you, don't need, you know if you work in health, you're a nurse, doctor, chemist, pharmacist, would you just stand wherever you are? We want to pray for you today. That's awesome. It's going to say pastors as well. So a bunch of our ministry team are going to stand there too. That's awesome. Counselors, psychologists, you might work in health administration. Just feel free to stand. And friends, I want to say this as you stand. You might be studying it. If you're studying it, please stand. We currently are walking through the first pandemic that has affected Australia in my lifetime. And it has taken courage for so many of you to not listen to conspiracies, to lead with truth, Be brave and courageous. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for blessing the world. And I pray that you would glorify God every day. Right now, what I would love is to pray for you, for protection and courage over every single one of you, whether you're a pastor or a chaplain or you're a doctor or a nurse, a counselor or a pharmacist. Would you reach out your hands to someone that's just standing right now? Let's pray for these friends. Lord God, we lift up those who work in the sphere of health whether it be mental health, pastoral life, or whether it be medicine, and actually practically work on the biology of who we are. Father, I pray your blessing on these men and women of God, that, Lord, that they would find meaning in what they do, because they are blessing the world and glorifying you. Protect them from the lies, the deceptions, and the traps in this world, and may they know truth, live in truth, and influence and lead your people. I pray you would bless them beyond embarrassment, protect their families, and may they find meaning in the call of God to be a difference, the very hands and feet of Him, the very image of Him, wherever they practice their vocation. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.